0: This is Cliffcentral.com.
1: Welcome to the Understanding Cancer podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention and also for support during cancer treatment with fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. Our second episode focuses on the cancer journey and today I am in conversation with medical experts from Discovery Health. Firstly, Dr. Nolutando Nematswerani, head of the Center for Clinical Excellence, and also clinical specialist, Dr. Sandilem Frongo. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much for having us. Before we talk about screening and diagnosis, I want us to unpack cancer prevention. The first thing that comes to mind is the promotion of
2: a healthy lifestyle. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. Absolutely. So I think when we talk about health promotion, obviously we're looking at a good diet. You know, we always talk about um, a a diet that is high in in fiber. We talk about a diet that is high in fruits and veggies. You know, we talk about physical activity, maintaining a healthy weight. So that's all part of what we would consider, you know, a, a good, healthy lifestyle that is Preventative in terms of of cancer. I don't know if there's anything else that Dr. Chonga would like to add. Um,
0: I think to Dr. Nulu's point, the two additional things maybe to mention is um, in terms of living a healthy lifestyle, smoking and alcohol intake so uh, and i and I think she deliberately wanted me to mention those two items. I'm not sure because she she thinks i'm a you know I have excessive alcohol intake <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: I, I think uh for previous smokers um and for current smokers uh, the the further you are from smoking, the better that's uh, in a nutshell and uh, so mm-hmm. if you have never smoked, you are much better than a person who's previously smoked. And having previously smoked, you are much better you know a hundredfold better than a person who currently smokes who smokes so and a moderate alcohol intake is is recommended as well so those are the two additional pillars of yeah. living a completely healthy lifestyle that I would add to Dr. Nolan's point.
2: We always say, I mean, you maintain a healthy lifestyle if you don't have a diagnosis. Once you have a diagnosis, it's important for you to maintain a healthy lifestyle with your diagnosis.
1: When it comes to key discovery health trends and insights, um, what can you share with us when when it comes to cancer in particular? I think
0: uh, the most... the saddest part of this is that uh, it's probably not a, a key discovery statistic but worldwide and we're seeing it in our own data at Discovery as well that um, the incidence and prevalence of cancer is increasing. So there's a, it's multifactorial. So one could argue that are we detecting cancer better than what we used to let's say 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely. But um, even co- having corrected for all of those factors more and more patients are being diagnosed with cancer and it is unfortunate because um, what we see—it's not only that we are diagnosing more and more people, but more and more people are being diagnosed later. And so, one would argue that if our technology and techniques of diagnosing cancer is improving over time, um, you would expect that we would be diagnosing people much earlier. So, um, which uh, will speak to the point of screening and you know promoting and prevention of cancer. But um, so, uh, I think that is the the most alarming point that in the 21st century we are. You know, with all that we know that science has taught us in terms of preventing cancer, we are diagnosing more and more cancers.
1: Are you alarmed by the number of people with cancer within your own member base?
0: The statistic that we're talking about is only for the discovery health population. So in in a population of 2.6 million members, it is a high number. And those are current uh, people who either have been Diagnosed, So meaning they've either had an early uh, diagnosis, they were, went a curative treatment or are undergoing treatment or are towards the end of life uh, during their cancer journey. So the, that statistic is quite high. Um, and I think we're a small population, but um, I think our, our lifestyle choices is probably what's mostly responsible for what we see in the data.
1: And when when you look at the, the the journey to an eventual cancer diagnosis, it all starts with screening. Are you satisfied with the screening rates, and or would you say are they too low? Can
2: I, okay. I think. When, when we look at screening, I think it's also very important to understand that not all cancers have got structured screening programs. So when we look at the ones where there is a structured screening program and there is, you know, there are available benefits for, for people to access, whether it's in the public sector or in the private sector, you find that the people who are supposed to be screened are actually not going for screening for fear of the diagnosis and sometimes lack of awareness. So people don't know what they need to do. And I think the other biggest fear is that when I do know what next and because I mean, cancer has got, you know, people always think cancer death, you know, they don't, then they sit even if they pick up something because there are some people who may uh, pick up some signs and symptoms that you know um that point towards the direction of a of a cancer diagnosis but they sit with it until they present very late when the symptoms and signs are actually quite severe and they cannot no longer live with those signs and symptoms so i think when we look at screening we look at there is stuff that you may not be able to know because there isn't a formal structured population wide screening program, and then there are instances where you do have a structured one, but you find that people are still not presenting themselves uh, for screening because of fear of what that diagnosis would mean if if they are tested tested positive but uh, we really encourage people to to screen because the earlier you screen. The earlier we can pick up the cancer. And I think Dr. Mtlongo is probably going to touch on some of these issues around early diagnosis, early intervention and survival. So we've seen that people who are presenting earlier to, in fact, when you are screened, then your diagnosis is, you know, your cancer diagnosis is picked up early. The interventions are usually even, how do I put it? But it's, they are not as intense as when you present later. Uh, so some of the cancers can be easily removed or they can be cured with uh, some of the treatments that can be given to those patients. And you find that the outcome, the overall outcome is much better for the patient. It's cheaper for the system and it's, it's overall good for, 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 for everyone else who is involved. The patients themselves, the families who have to look after those patients, because remember, there is also the burden, um, of disease that impacts the, the, uh, you know, the family and, and the loved ones once a person has a cancer diagnosis.
0: So I, I think, uh, absolutely, um, to Dr. Nodu's point, the issue that we're seeing is that uh, even where we have screening programs, um, the participation in the screening programs is very low. Um, I mean, our probably most successful, and I think this is not uh, different to international norms and trends, our most successful screening programs are usually in breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But we are talking low rates in the region of, you know, 22, 23 percent at the best of times. Mm-hmm. So, and the most alarming piece is that uh, those rates are not, it's not we are getting more people year on year. We're screening the same people over and over. Mm-hmm. So... um. Not that we should, we would rather not screen those who qualify for screening, rep- repetitive screening, but it would be so nice if we could say that population of people participating in screening programs is growing. So mm-hmm. that's not happening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the other challenge is also around educating people around... If there are no structured screening programs, as uh, Dr. Nodu highlighted earlier, not every condition has a population-wide screening and we shouldn't screen, we shouldn't encourage people to screen when there isn't an evidence-based program that we can refer them to to participate Mm. in because that is, has its own harms as well. Mm. So the, benefit and harms of screening ought to be weighed carefully. And so we, at Discovery, we, we follow in nation, nationwide and international guidelines on screening programs. So, but for where there are no screening programs, there's nothing that prevents people where they, where they see manifestations of problems. To seek advice and help from their clinicians or their healthcare providers, so uh, I think that's where um, the issue comes in. That people assume that because there's no screening, mm. then there's nothing to be done. Yes, mm-hmm. if there isn't a screening program, if you see a lump that doesn't that you mm-hmm. cannot explain on your mm-hmm. skin, or yeah. you see you know uh, you 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 I mean um, to be honest, you you passing you know your bowel habits have changed, you're losing excessive weight, or mm-hmm. that you see blood in the urine or in the stool, and so on and so forth, or you're coughing up blood that you shouldn't wait for that to simply disappear over time, right? Mm -hmm. So what we are encouraging is that yes, if there are screening programs, we need to educate our, our masses and people should participate as far as possible in screening, in in population wide screening programs Mm -hmm. where there are no screening programs. Ensure that if they, as you, as, as you age and as you observe changes in, in your body habitats or your bodily functions or anything that actually is, you cannot explain. There's, there's no harm in going for a consultation with a doctor and, uh, and inquire about that. Rather be safe than sorry.
2: No, definitely. I mean, I, I've got an example of, of a patient of, of, of mine some years ago who had repeated urinary tract infections. Um, and he was consulting for these infections until the one day when he presented to us, he already had blood in the urine and he had bladder cancer. And I think once you have symptoms that are not resolving, where there is a diagnosis that, you know, it's a working diagnosis that the doctors are using to treat you, but you, you feel that, you know what, I've been on treatment, several courses of antibiotics, I'm not getting better. You must almost look for a second opinion to say, is there something untoward that, that we may be missing? And I think we've seen it many times where, you know, patients are being treated, you know, they move from doctor to doctor having symptoms that are unexplained. So those are cases where we should be worrying and looking deeper to see if there are any any signs that this patient could be having cancer and i think i mean if you look at bladder cancer it's not like there's a structured um screening program but if you are presenting with symptoms that are just not going away it's very important for you to 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 be you know you know to to be you to to seek uh, further you know confirmation of what exactly is going on Um, And I think this is really important for patients because sometimes uh, a person lives with those symptoms. They say, okay, I've been to doctors, I've been treated, um, and then they accept that diagnosis even though the symptoms have not resolved. Women, I mean,
1: we, we know about um, the importance of having regular pup smears and mammograms. And like I said, Mm we encourage to check uh, for lumps uh, during showers. Um, What does the uh, screening for cancer entail in general for men and for women?
2: So if we look at women, so women, um, it also obviously is dependent on your age. So when we look at cervical cancer screening, I mean we know that um, you know cervical cancer is uh, is one of the top uh, cancers for South African women. Um, breast cancer being number one, and then cervical cancer is one of is the second one. So for cervical cancer, you actually start screening earlier. So uh, if you look at uh, the main risk factor for cervical cancer being human papilloma virus uh, infection so for most women who are sexually active they may you know contract this uh, sexually and this virus can actually form cause benign uh, conditions where you get warts and stuff but uh, there are specific strains that are associated with cancer so we usually then recommend screening early so where patients will then go and be screened with a pap smear like you mentioned and i mean now there's also recommendation of an additional test where you actually check for this particular virus which is associated with uh, with cervical cancer so uh, you know the the guidelines are recommend from the age of 25 and above and i mean there were instances where we also consider that, you know, the age of sexual debut, the earlier you have been sexually active, you know, the more exposure you would have had, and therefore earlier screening in some instances may be recommended. HIV status also plays a role in screening. So we always say if you're HIV positive, you need to be screened, and you screened much more frequently than a person who's not HIV infected. And then um, we, so with screening for cervical, then you start at that age. And usually if you have been screening, you can stop screening at the age of 65. But for women who have never screened at all, if your first uh, screening is at 66, we'll still allow you to, to be screened. So they usually are looking at people who have never screened and say you can start. And then the frequency is every three years if there's no abnormality. If there is an abnormality, then the, the doctors will then decide to rescreen you until they're comfortable that there is nothing abnormal that they pick up from the cells of the, of the cervix. Um, if you are HIV positive, the frequency is much more so annual screening. Uh, with the with the other modalities of, of of screening, like HPV, for example, which is the human papilloma virus screening test, the frequency is is less in the sense that um, the three years becomes five years if there's no abnormality, or it becomes three years if there is uh, you know there is something that uh, needs to be followed up specifically if there is an underlying HIV diagnosis, and then mammography. So, if you look at mammography, I mean, we know that there is a relationship between some genetic, uh, you know. um, In fact, there is hereditary breast cancer, and there is breast cancer that uh, you know happens to most of us. So, if you look at hereditary, yeah, it's sporadic. So, if you look at hereditary breast cancers, I mean, it's actually a very small percentage of cancers. So, most of what we see in breast cancer is not actually related to genetics, um, which is why you know. So, yes, we need to look at those who are predisposed because of their genetics and make sure that they are screened early on and they are screened as frequently as possible. And these are people who have had their mother who has had breast cancer, you know, their grandmother or their maternal aunts and stuff like that. So we look at also what we call first-degree relatives, second-degree relatives, and how many people have been affected, and therefore the screening program then is tailored for, for your risk. And then, I mean, like we're saying, it's about 5 to 10%, but the rest of us who may not have a genetic predisposition need to still present ourselves for screening every two years with mammography. The age of uh, initiation varies uh, from guideline to guideline. But uh, most guidelines will start at 40. There are some who will recommend from 45, and the majority will recommend from 50 because the older you get, your risk also increases. And, um, I mean, also, depending on your risk, it may be mammography with additional tests that the doctors would uh, recommend so that they make sure that, you know, they improve the sensitivity of the test and the pickup rate of of that test. So if we look at the cancers, those are the two main Screening, um, you know, uh, programs that we can talk about. But it doesn't mean that those are the only cancers that women can get. I mean, we know there are, there's ovarian cancer, you know, which is related to, to the women as well. But uh, there is no formal uh, screening uh, program for that. Mm-hmm. I'll leave Sandile to talk about the men. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like
0: there's a bit of a bias there,
2: right? <laughs> I don't mind talking about the men and their so, prostates. <laughs>
0: so it, it's interesting that actually uh, prostate cancer being um, the commonest uh, male cancer, yeah. The, you know this has been a, an old argument uh, if you ask scientists uh, doctors around the world urologists, oncologists, anybody the the, the evidence on screening for prostate cancer um, using PSA is actually very questionable so over the years um, there has been a, a significant question if there is a, if there is a, a gain or, um, or no gain for, uh, using that screening program so a lot of uh, doctors still recommend uh, patients to just to to do from about age 40, a PSA, um, it's a prostate-specific sc- uh, antigen. It's a blood test. It's a simple blood test that they do. But the data supporting that uh, is, uh, depending on where you are, it's, it's not equivocal. Um, and so I would say, actually, uh, pro- uh, probably um, there's uh, depending on risk. So each individual uh, male, male over the age of forty, depending on their risk, should have a conversation about their doctor to actually decide how they ought to go forward uh, with the screening for that individual. So if you look at, if I was to say, what would we recommend for all males? it would be um, very incorrect of, uh, of us to say this is what we know, the science scientists agree this is the modality of screening. But we know that actually prostate cancer is, uh, I, I can't remember where I read this, Nolu, um, uh, every, if, if every male lives long enough, They'll have prostate cancer.
2: Yeah. So no. if,
0: so, and in fact, if this has been confirmed. If you look at cadaveric studies of, mm. you know, older gentlemen, almost all of them, I think it was above uh, 70, uh, if I remember well, they had some changes in the prostate that was indicating changes towards cancer or already cancer. And most males, even with prostate cancer, die of natural causes. Or other causes
2: Yeah, and, and I think that that's where the debate has been coming To say if you screen And you diagnose everyone with cancer What happens today is that Once you have the diagnosis then there's an intervention So like Sandile is saying If you've got a condition That would not necessarily have killed you And now we have All these men who will have These you know You uh, know Invasive procedures being done where the their prostates are being removed when actually um the the, the, the cancers that they, they have are considered low grade they would not have killed them, so I think that's where the debate has been coming from to say is screening uh, every man that you see on the street who is about above the age of forty um going to give us uh, some form of clinical benefit that if we had not done so, we would not have achieved. But then, having said that, I mean, uh, in the South African context, this is an argument that we've heard from some of our urologists that say, if you look at the developed countries where they've been screening for longer than we have, they've got um, they've got more established uh, screening programs. With us. We have not been screening that long and I don't think even our rates are that high. In fact, they are very low in terms of screening because we know that men don't present themselves well for for some of these screening programs. What they have been picking up specifically in African men is that the, the types of cancer that they pick up is quite aggressive. So the prostate cancer in African men has been seen to be more aggressive, which is why Even in the in the recommendation, if you say for everybody else start at 50, they would believe that for the African men start earlier at the age of 45. But I think the question is around the intervention to say, do you intervene the same way for all men that you pick up um, this cancer, which is why it becomes an individualized discussion between the doctor and the patient to say here the pros and cons of doing the test. And once the test is at this level, This is the intervention. But I I know Sandile has spoken about PSA. I want to talk about the the other test that is painless but a bit uncomfortable and (laughs) – and I think we should talk about it. And I think most men become very uncomfortable when we talk about it. It's called digital rectal, rectal. examination. I remember this very well when I was a young doctor when I had to ask the old men to turn over for me to examine their prostates. The only way you can do this is through the rectum. So you put your finger in there to feel for the prostate. I am telling you, the men don't. <laughs> they don't find this comfortable for understandable reasons, Sonia. But, but Sonia, you and I, we go and present ourselves for a pap smear and it's uncomfortable, equally uncomfortable and we do it religiously. So for men, you know, you can just put the finger, you know, there and feel for the prostate because that on its own can give you a sense of whether the prostate has got, you know, cancer. You know, they, you feel for the size, you feel for the, the, the smoothness, is it irregular and stuff like that. And then you combine that with the blood test. But I can tell you now, men run away from,
0: <laughs> from, I, I think, from you know, this
2: you simple <laughs> and and easy <laughs> type of of of, of screening. Okay.
0: Yes. No, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, before I, 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 you know, I forget to, uh, to say that I am joking. It, it is true. Nodu is absolutely right. We should encourage men, men. And in fact, uh, men are very, very, are the biggest culprits of not looking after their own bodies and not listening after their own bodies. So, um, I think Nodu is hitting it, uh, the, hitting the nail on the head. Men, um, a rectal examination in combination with a PSA is much more informative than either one of the two on their own. And in fact, that is the recommendation that should be any form of screening be agreed between the doctor and the patient. So um and in general men over 50 should be going routinely for evaluation with their doctors. And um, to be quite honest, I would I would encourage my father and we should encourage all men all men to really start listening. And I don't think it's even relating just to prostate cancer. Men in general generally present with much more, of any condition. They they generally present much later with much more severe um, uh, symptoms and with much more severe disease progression because, you know, it, it's, you know, we have to mm-hmm. be macho, we have to be strong, we have to mm-hmm. stick it out there and, you know, simple things. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, an examination. It takes all of five minutes. Uh, the rectal examination. It's, it's not that we are talking something actually that, you know, uh for the rest of your life you 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 know you you, you will actually have uh you, you're, yes mentally you might be you
2: might <laughs> <I'm> traumatized. <laughs> but you know, I have to add something, you know, for me the reason why I'm 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 raising this and highlighting it, I think even the even the doctors themselves. They don't. So, because this is such a, a an uncomfortable examination, and I don't know why, because when when we go and present ourselves for pap smears, nobody thinks it's uncomfortable. They say it's the right thing to do, and therefore we'll do it. You find that the conversation does not take place even when the man is in the room. So, I think for us here, we are saying for the men, they must ask for it. As uncomfortable as the doctor can be, this is the right thing for the patient. So, you know... It is about making the, the men aware so that they can make the doctors comfortable to do this, uh, these investigations on them. And, I mean, it's it's, it's quick and, yeah, quick.
1: <laughs> Aside from prostate cancer, what other cancers should men be aware of?
2: There's colorectal cancer as well. And, I mean, colorectal cancer is not cancer that only affects men. But, I mean, when we look at the screening programs for men, it will be prostate and colorectal. But obviously colorectal will also apply to women. So with colorectal, I mean, it's also an uncomfortable uh, type of screening because it's either you collect the stool for the screening or you have a colonoscopy. I mean, for any patient who has had a colonoscopy done, they will tell you it's an uncomfortable type of investigation, but it is a, an investigation that looks inside uh, your colon um, to actually see if there are any suspicious uh, lesions and if there is anything suspicious then they can take a piece of tissue and take it to the lab to see if it is cancerous or not and as part of that they could actually remove some of the of the lesions that you know that may seem benign but the most important thing is that it's a visualization it's a camera that is you know Inserted inside a person's body and then it looks inside to see if there are any problems. But I mean, even before people screen, I think there are certain symptoms that uh, Sandile mentioned early on around, you know, a change in bowel habits. You know, if you have today constipation, Ongoing constipation, you know, your stool changes suddenly. It's watery and all that stuff. You need to be worried. I mean, we've known, um, you know, friends who have had uh, these, uh, these diagnoses. When you look into it, you find that there were some signs and symptoms that maybe they were ignored, but we also are not disputing the fact that there are certain people who may have this diagnosis and there were no warning signs. But I think for, from our side, we're saying, this is another cancer where there is a structured uh, screening, uh, you know, a uh, program that says at least go and get your stool tested. Ask your doctor about available options. If colonoscopy is the option for you, then it is the option for you. And if a simple stool test is the option, then they ha- can have that conversation with you. With a stool test, it is really about picking up some, you know, microscopic blood that may not be visible to the naked eye where it is already a sign that there may be some form of bleeding taking place in the bowel that you may not see related to the cancer. And that screening says, if we pick up that there is something, you can be treated uh, early. And I mean, the survival rates are magnificent if uh, the, the 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 diagnosis is made early, and I mean we've seen people who have had some of the colorectal cancers, some of our colleagues who are living normal lives after they've had you know um you know surgical resection of the cancer, and because the cancer was still localized and it was not spread to the rest of the body, they've done very well. So I think it's another important one, and I think. If you look at the, some of the international headlines, they've actually highlighted now the, the, the issue around, you know, younger people having colorectal cancer uh, diagnosis and also the fact that it's not only the fact that there's an increasing incidence of cancer in the younger, you know, uh, patients, but also the fact that it also is at an advanced stage when it is picked up. So I think it's really creating that awareness. And if you look at colorectal cancer, there's also a correlation with diet, you know, which is why when we're talking about prevention, we spoke about um, high Fiber diet, you know, fruits and veggies that have also been uh, you know, uh, considered to be preventative, you know in, in terms of, of colorectal cancer but it is another cancer that we need to think about.
0: So uh, I think uh, that for me is of the main screening programs That those are the four main screening programs that, that are offered in general population-wide. Mm-hmm. I wanted just to comment maybe on the other side of when not to screen. We shouldn't um, you know, ignore that because oftentimes because we're trying to educate about cancer, we're trying to educate people about, you know, different conditions, not just cancer only. Then, um, you know, there are harms as well when, when, you know, we, re- we may recommend inappropriate screening methods for that are not evidence based or where there's no benefit of population wide screening. And I think Nolu touched on this much earlier where we may find ourselves um, recommending an intervention um, like a screening program and that leads to either surgeries that are unwarranted. And I I think a good example is in prostate cancer where we may eventually recommend biopsies or even surgical removal of prostates that would have never affected, let alone killed. I think they would have never affected the individuals. So um, there are benefits and harms to be weighed. And um, by the, uh, and each individual patient needs to discuss this um, clearly with their treating doctor and, and ask what are the harms of me. But even if, even if it was, um, you know, colorectal, you should ask about your individual uh, situation as a patient and say, but I think if you don't have the conversation, you will never know, so we encourage people to have the, ask the right questions, so, uh, inquire from their doctors um, and you know inform themselves about what they ought to do. But you know it 's not that uh, just because they're screening for some cancers, then they should be screening for every single cancer, and even if they 're screening for some cancers that everybody so be it breast cancer, not everybody is a candidate for screening just because you 're female, it does not mean. You therefore ought to be screened. There are age cutoffs because there are benefits for those populations that are confined to those age cutoffs. If you are outside of those data usually suggests that there's more of a harm. Not that you may not necessarily, they couldn't find anything or you couldn't develop cancer if you fall out of those age cutoffs. So that's what I wanted to suggest as well to that.
1: Men love technology. And Discovery Health has launched through the Discovery app a new platform called Doctor Connect, which gives users the option to do a virtual consultation with a doctor as well as access to vetted medical information. They can also ask questions of the Doctor community. I don't know if you think this might assist men when symptoms first come up and hopefully flag anything that could be serious if left unchecked.
0: I think it's a very useful platform because uh, as you're asking, males um, are generally not the kind of people who will take the is the first symptoms because we have to be macho. Uh, they will take the, kind, the first symptom they present with. But uh, it's a very useful platform for people to pose the questions, um, even if this is what I'm seeing or what are the signs for this condition and we have doctors. Um, this is a global platform where Discovery uh, brings a, a wealth of doctors um, that participate in answering uh, patients Questions. It's not. Uh, it's not just Nolu and myself sitting there or a chatbot that you're talking to. These are professionals from around the globe, and um, it should be a platform that I think our 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 members um, should welcome because it takes away the fear of going to a doctor. It's anonymized and for, for, from that point onwards, you may find that the doctor will respond or the committee of doctors responding might recommend that you consult physically with a doctor. At least you have some kind of insights about as to where Maybe it was you were torn between it's it's something minor and, you know, some some people might see, you know, dark black streaks of uh, something they can't recognize in their stool. To a doctor like Dolu and myself, that could be, this is Melina. Mm. And so to an average person, you can ask that question. This is what I noted. There's no change. I'm not constipated. I don't have a runny tummy. Nothing has changed. I haven't lost weight. Or I was going to gym, but I've lost two kilograms, so I don't know. Mm. And our recommendation would be, well, that sounds like there could be blood in the stool. You should consult. So that's... For me, Dr. Connect enables those kind of easy questions where if you're uncertain and or you could have access to a doctor without the fear of um, having, you know, taking something very light or really having access to a doctor on tap, if I Mm -hmm. can put it that way. Mm
1: -hmm. And I mean, when when we move away from from screening, we we talk about the diagnostic uh, phase. What does it take to diagnose cancer? I mean, tissue samples, Large scans. What are the various forms of diagnosis?
0: So you, I, I, I guess, I don't even have to answer you because I think you have it right there. So, <laughs> so, um, it like
1: R- Remember, I'm your fifth grade <laughs> student. And I, I think, I think for me, what's important is for people to know that there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? No, absolutely, yeah, no true, absolutely. Because we're dealing with something that is very complex.
0: It's, so. it's very complex, and different circumstances um, and different types of cancers will be diagnosed. And Differently, I, I think uh, in most cases, what we've all been taught and what the average uh, person tends to believe is that a tissue sample at some point would be the confirmatory test. And I, uh, that's, that's, that remains true for, I would say, uh, the, please don't quote me on these numbers uh, as a, a number I'm sucking out of my head right now. Probably 95% of cases, you would require a tissue sample to confirm the diagnosis. So a tissue sample is where a part uh, of the body, either through a biopsy or a resection or whatever, you you know, um, usually, commonly, it would be a biopsy, so where either a needle is put in and the sample is aspirated or um, in a colonoscopy, so they might resect if they see a polyp and they take it out and they send it to the laboratory for further analysis by a, a doctor called a histopathologist or a tissue pathologist. So that would usually be once they kind of have some information. So most cancers, you'd start with simple tests, and I, and I think medicine, for me, that's, what, that's why I love it, for the simplicity. Right? So,
2: and the fifth grader is, is fifth not grader is even
0: more confused now. No, no, no. Medicine, actually, that's, that's, that's what's lovely about it. It's just simply, you, st- you start with simple things. You know, um, a patient, for instance, will present, let's say, with a breast lamp. Right? A clinical examination is what every doctor should do. And you should question if your doctor does not examine you clinically. Because uh, on average, I know I wouldn't say on average, the expectation is that each each evaluation includes a history taking you know when did the lamp appear what what has changed about it what is unusual why you know why are you here taking care of your family history if the history has not been taken just because we there's a lamp and we move on to a biopsy you know we've missed a lot of information because we spoke about family history let's say of your first, of your first degree relatives you know is there a risk of this being a genetically uh, um uh, or oh, in a uh, hereditary cancer, even if it is a cancer, and it's it it wouldn't have been justice done if all of that information is missing. So a clinical examination captures just the basic background of the current problem, your family history. What are your risks? What are your social, you know, what are the social, we spoke earlier about the social habits. So why would they not come into that, into that part of the question? And then we move on to the clinical examination. So that's where the doctor is really trying to now say, let me see for myself. What can I see? What can I feel? What can I hear? You know, that kind of thing. And then the basic test would be you know just basic radiography and some basic bloods, you know depending on the nature of the problem so if it's a breast if it's a breast lump that is being evaluated, a breast ultrasound might be the starting point if um 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 a mammogram might 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 have been had even before, and if necessary actually a, a an m r i or or then a biopsy, so it could either be a bio an excision biopsy where the lump is taken out. And it, the whole lamp is sent to the laboratory for further analysis, or it could be just a core biopsy where a it needle is inserted into the lamp and only a sample of it is taken. So, depending on the nature of the conscious and how the patient is presenting as well, so you could find a patient presenting with an advanced problem where, for instance, basic tests are no longer necessary. So, you're moving to advanced diagnostics. So, maybe you'd be looking at an MRI. Let's say you have an, a patient presenting with an advanced colorectal cancer. So, an MRI of the abdomen. Liver might be uh, necessary And then moving on to surgery Right. So where they do an exploration of the abdomen and exploration of the of the site where the where, where the problems are. And at times if it's that advanced, even a sampling of the of the site may may not be possible. So that happens in very few circumstances where the doctors are weary that even sampling might cause spread of the cancer if they strongly suspect. So CT scans, MRIs will usually indicate whether they see the radiologist will report on what they're seeing. Does it suggest that it could be cancer of that site or they think it's cancer? And so that emanated from a different side. So all of that is usually put together to build a picture. It's uh, 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 it's like, I, I love these investigative uh, shows on TV, the documentaries, because you actually see how they, they work exactly the same as, as doctors do. You investigate the problem. You you don't have just one thing and then you build a whole story around. That's how often we miss the, the obvious, you know, or we miss the case because we went for the most obvious or the, what was most mm-hmm. compelling. So you ought to put all of that as a clinician together with the patient and say, now that I have all of This evidence How do I build The story around it And then we come up With the final view Because also you have Then you know What is the background Of the patient What is the correct treatment That we need to recommend On the base of what we think The underlying problem Could have come from And also you've understood other issues that might affect the treatment, you know, so, so for me, all of that is, is what a doctor ought to do to put together the picture. But in the diagnostic momentarium, all of the things that you asked me about, they play a role mm. in different contexts, depending on the clinical presentation and the problem the patient mm. is presenting with.
2: I think, I mean, just to, to add to, to what Sandile has said, I mean, there are instances where patients are going to hear the doctor saying, we did some tumor markers. You know, there are specific blood tests that they will use to say if this blood test comes back at this level, you know, it's most likely, you know, indicative of a diagnosis of cancer. But you find that some of those may not be very specific, but they may be quite sensitive in in terms of a positive diagnosis of cancer. So what happens, like Sunday is saying, it's usually not one single test. It's a combination of all those tests together with the history, the examination that then will give the doctor, you know, a fair, you know, and a reasonable, uh, you know, sense that this is the diagnosis that they're dealing with.
1: And I mean, when you touch on the diagnosis stage, obviously what follows then is the treatment phase.
0: So, uh, you know, it, it's fair to say a doctor will combine a number of things. Uh, so depending on which doctor you're talking about and what stage the patient is at. So... For, and maybe I'll stick to just two types of examples to do, to sort of paint a picture of how different treatments in very similar circumstances of, you know, what to the layperson might be the same, but actually to the clinicians treating you, those would be treated very differently. So a a simple, a simple example of a patient presenting with a polyp in the, in the, in the colon. So it's just a growth and, you know, diagnosed at colonoscopy. They could resect the polyp and they find cancer cells in there. You might find that the polypectomy, which is a procedure where the, the polyp was removed, could be curative if they removed with all the margins. Or they might need to go back for a minor procedure. They do a resection of the of a segment. You know, it could be a two centimeter segment of the of the colon, and that is curative. The patient no longer has cancer. They would be followed up, you know, with uh, with annual uh, colonoscopies for a period of time, and they could be the same as you know any other person walking down the street. But similarly a colorectal patient could present with stage four, right? There's 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 um cancer that's seen in the liver, there's cancer that's seen for instance in the lung or the brain, and it's the same type of condition. To be quite honest, it, it, one has to understand the clinical presentation, the type of cancer, um, what subtype of that cancer is. So Nodu spoke a little bit earlier when we were talking about uh, prostate cancer. Is it aggressive? Is it a, not an aggressive cancer? And even the cancers themselves, sometimes they express what we call certain protein mm. that are markers for a particular treatment type. Mm. It, not everybody or to get a particular so a good example, an excellent example is, is Herceptin. Uh, it's a blockbuster drug for treating uh, some breast cancers. Not every patient with breast cancer is is a candidate for for Herceptin. Even if they were everything, same stage, same clinical presentation, same race, same ethnicity, same age, no other comorbidities. If you did not have the protein that is a receptor or a marker for response. To the treatment called Hesapin, if that was your only differentiator, you start getting two treatments. So, and I think for me, that's those are things and nuances that each clinician and um, ought to be able to explain to the patients about why, which which treatment should we choose on the basis of what, and the patient should understand that, and what are the expected outcomes from that treatment. So, in the early stages of cancer, and this is uniform across all cancers, in the early stages, we, we usually would be aiming for a cure. So usually surgical interventions, they might be supported by some chemotherapy and in some instances, some radiotherapy that would be aiming for a cure. But the more advanced the disease is, the more difficult it is and up to a point where it's impossible to aim for a cure and then you aim for um, palliative care. Uh, you can get chemotherapy in the palliative setting. So it one should not also confuse that palliation means you are not getting um treatment that is active either be it chemo or radiotherapy. So in those instances uh, I think for me the first piece is to understand your own clinical factors, your demographics, uh, so um, as I said, age, your other conditions that you may have, um, your stage of diagnosis, your tumor type, your tumor mm-hmm. subtype, mm-hmm. other receptor markers that, mm-hmm. and then the doctor then will put together a treatment plan that takes those factors into account. Mm-hmm. So usually the, it, it would be either surgery or chemotherapy or radiotherapy or a combination of any one of mm-hmm. those and um that in, in at a high level and then obviously there's detail within each treatment type you know chemotherapy is usually using drugs to kill the the cancer cells uh, as far as possible, but we know that these drugs also have their own problems because they kill also normal parts of the body, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's they they're targeting the fast growing, rapid growing cancer cells, but they will also have their own side effects because they also do kill. That's why people lose hair.
2: Mm-hmm. Hair is
0: you know it's fast growing uh, cells, so they would they might lose hair. They might have severe diarrhea because also the the gut is where you have fast growing uh, uh, cells and the bone marrow and so on and so forth. So radiotherapy is using X-rays, so to speak, if I can simplify it, to target at a specific site where the cancer is and um, to actually use ionizing radiation specifically to kill off the cancer cells. And all of those are with the hope that you can reduce or kill as as much of the cancer that is within the system. So chemotherapy is generally systemic, so meaning the cancer might have potentially spread beyond the site of origin. It does not necessarily mean it has it may be that the, the clinicians, especially the believe
2: mm-hmm.
0: um that the cancer has spread beyond where it was found. So if, for instance, it's still circulating, even if it's not diagnosed, let's say, in the liver or, or elsewhere, but they believe that where they found it, there's a potential that there were some cells that had already escaped the original site and then to use chemotherapy to then target them in wherever they may be through the blood. And uh, surgery is usually trying to remove either if it's early, remove the local uh, cancer where it is aiming for a cure, as I said, or sometimes actually because uh, maybe it's causing effects, especially in the liver where either the cancer cells are compressing normal liver cells. So they may aim for removing the cancerous part of the liver so you can preserve the normal rem- remnants of the liver or, you know, so there's different combinations. And depending on what extent the disease is, the doctors would be aiming then for a, a, an outcome to best suit the individual patient. You know, in that context.
2: So, as Sandile also mentioned earlier, that you know there are specific markers that also determine the type of treatment that patients will get. So, it's important for patients to understand that those tumour. I mean, we call the some of it some tumour genetics. So, you take that sample; it goes there. They check for specific genetic markers in the tumour itself. And then uh, patients can be prescribed specific medications that target those specific markers. So which is why I think we really need to emphasize the fact that um, the treatment plans may vary from patient to patient based on all the findings and all the tests that the doctors would have done. I mean, there is stuff even just on the histology the differentiation of the cells. So patients may not be fully aware of all the various factors that are taken into account in designing their individual uh, treatment plans. So the fact that you've got the same diagnosis doesn't mean that now you must expect to get the same treatment. I mean, I know people usually compare notes. Okay. I'm getting this. Why am, I, why are you not getting that? They must understand that the, the, the diagnosis itself is Potentially a high level giving you that you've got breast cancer, but there are many other varying factors that will, you know, inform what the doctors are going to do with that patient going forward and the spread of disease being one and also the sequence in terms of what treatment they start with first will also be, um, you know, uh, linked to what they would have found out.
1: And Dr. Nollu, you, you've been talking about tumors. Um, I would love for you to enlighten me on the solid tumors versus blood tumors.
2: So if we look at solid organ tumors, these are tumors coming from organs like your liver, your liver tumors, your pancreatic tumors. So where it is, so we usually, I mean, the differentiation is between solid tumors, which is like tissue tumors versus blood tumors, where we talk about leukemias, And uh, lymphomas, lymphomas, you know So that is the difference So if you look at most of the tumors That we have almost been discussing today With Sandy on the show uh, We're we're making reference mainly to solid tumors So when we talk about lung cancer We talk about breast So that's like It's solid organs organs, So
0: So if you think of blood cancers Think of your blood and blood forming organs Mm -hmm. So if you think about anything It's in the bone marrow or in your circulating blood or mm-hmm. lymph nodes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so th- that's considered part of your um, blood-forming organs. Mm-hmm. So that would then um, speak to um, blood cancers, if mm-hmm. if I can call it that, and anything outside of that. So starting head to toe, your brain, your throat, mm-hmm. or, all of those would be in solid organs, so known as non-circulating, and therefore they are solid organ tumors. The, I think we've used the terminology tumors and cancers interchangeably. Mm. Um, uh, in common language, I think that is, that is acceptable. Um, so it could tumors could mean something benign, whereas cancer always refer to malignant tumors. If I can separate that, uh, but I think most commonly people use it interchangeably without um, the average person understands it to be. If we talk about tumors, you could have a benign tumor, um, and in fact, we see more benign tumors than we see more we see Cancer. So the fact that actually, and I think it's a, it's an important distinction to always make. That if I go to a doctor and they and uh, and they say, well, we saw a tumor on on your skin on your neck. Uh, at that point, I'm not extremely worried. I want to know, okay, tumor of what? Uh, what do we mean? Do we okay, unlikely we would have to biopsy it, and only then I'll start worrying. Okay, it came back as a malignant tumor. Then I start thinking, okay, because a tumor is really a growth. Mm. whereas a cancer is a malignant growth. That's maybe what I... And so people shouldn't yeah. always be alarmed that least simply a doctor saying you have a tumor means, you know, it's a cancer diagnosis.
2: And I think, I mean, the, the terminology that most people use is growth. The doctor says, I've got a growth. So um you can have a growth that, yes, it may be giving symptoms because of the size, because of the position. I mean, you may get, for example, a brain Tumor, which is a growth that is not cancerous, but it's giving you symptoms because it's pressing against important organs, you know. So you find that because it's benign, it can be easily removed and uh, the patient can actually be fine. So the difference is that with cancerous uh, growths, where we talk about cancer, the worry with cancer is that it spreads, whereas a benign tumor is usually localized but it can give you local symptoms yeah.
0: it can so grow and compress it yeah, can grow it something. can
2: just be this big thing that grows and presses on you know the organs that are you know in the in the surrounding area but mm-hmm. uh, if you remove it you're not worried that it can be somewhere else whereas with cancer which is why when a cancer diagnosis is made even though you know where the the, the primary site is you always look for distant spread to other areas of the body and if you look even for people where the cancer has been treated part of the monitoring ongoing is to look for recurrence and also to look and see if if the spread has actually happened, because some of it may not be picked up as early as when it happens, which is why that routine monitoring is, is, is important once a cancer diagnosis has been, has been, um, has been made. And I think a lot of people will know people who have been treated and As part of their follow-up, suddenly something else has been picked up and you find that it is linked to the initial cancer that they had.
0: Sonia, I wanted to highlight, you know, we spoke a lot about uh, treatment being being patient-centric, if I can call it that, um, individualized patient care based on the individual circumstances. Um, One should never confuse that with um, treatment that is not evidence-based because, you know, people actually have you know it it could be easily confused that actually if the treatment is individualized that means only me would ever have this treatment we don't we don't we don't we don't imply that for for a second so what we are saying is that actually different types of cancers with different stages with different clinical presentations often have standard treatments that are evidence-based that have been tested and are those treatments are registered and have demonstrated positive clinical outcomes for patients with those set of circumstances similar to Sandile, for instance, which is very different to finding something that has absolutely no rationale or no basis in evidence to say, individualize it because this is my situation and therefore I should get this treatment. And those are very, very Different and distinct, and uh, uh, yeah, distinct points that um, one shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't actually take for granted. So the treatment has to be evidence-based, and to the extent possible. And if patients aren't set in, um, I think uh, it's something that we should always encourage. Uh, cancer treatment does not mean that uh, if if I'm diagnosed today, yes, there are agencies. Uh, oftentimes the cancer would have developed over time. Mm -hmm. So not getting treatment between today and next week is unlikely. Maybe I'm I'm, I'm misplaced in saying this. The outcome that would have occurred if I start treatment today versus next week is the outcome that will occur irrespective of what happens between now and next week. But to take a step back and either have a consultation with maybe if you so feel the with, a, with, a, with a, obtain a second opinion just to get to be sure that you are doing the right thing for yourself for your family and for anybody else that they 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 are they, likely to be harm and in fact actually if you open with your doctor about that they will usually encourage you and they will actually even they may recommend other doctors who are in that field because it's pointless to speak to a general practitioner and you go to an oncologist so they, they those are two different disciplines and specialists so um People should be encouraged to ensure that they get evidence-based treatment and where possible, if they are uncertain, they should be encouraged to get second opinions.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, when you touch on evidence-based medicine, it's always important to, to highlight the fact that, um, clinical evidence is growing. So you may find that what we have accessible for treating certain cancers today was not available 10 years ago. And as that evidence grows, obviously, it means there are clinical trials that are ongoing. So if we look at um you know some of the patients you know you may find that it's a rare tumor or a rare type of cancer where you know there is limited access to to new newer treatments so we we really would like uh, patients and members out there to be aware of some of the trials that they could be enrolled in. So it is obviously the doctor's responsibility to make sure that patients are aware of what they can access in terms of those clinical trials. And also the doctor will discuss with the patient, you know, the the criteria for enrolling into a, a trial, which could actually give patients access to therapies that are currently potentially not registered, but are being tested. And they may, there might have been existing therapies that are used in other forms of cancers, but they are expanding the indications to other forms of cancers where there is a likelihood of getting a positive uh, outcome. So I think it's very important for us to, 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 to really emphasize the importance of good science when uh, patients are accessing treatment uh, and making sure that patients have got that awareness and they have go the, they, they have um, those open discussions with their doctors around what's available and what's not.
1: Uh, Dr. Mfong, earlier on you, you you touched on palliative care, and I, I I would love for you to touch on the um, Discovery Health Advanced Illness Benefit because that that seems to support members to navigate and it offers uh, support for dignified death. It's it's not an easy topic, but these conversations have to be had, right?
0: Absolutely, um, it's it's a very Challenging uh, conversation, I think, uh, even for clinicians, um, it's, uh, first of all, to approach the diagnosis of cancer with patients. Uh, It's not uncommon to hear stories of patients who, um, even doctors tell you that, you know, the moment you share the diagnosis with the patient, it's as if they blank out from that moment. It's like you're alone in the room. And equally for patients, uh, all they hear is, I have cancer. Um, to what cancer maybe they would link it to why they were being examined, so if it was the press or so they they would link it to that. But the conversation um about just informing the patient of cancer um is a very difficult one. And I don't think um we as clinicians are uh, we we do we, we, I think there's still a lot more we can do to ensure that those conversations about just the diagnosis are had and had correctly in the right context and so when you talk about palliative care uh, the danger of uh, us so uh, often is that when we think of palliative care is that we think of uh, in palliative care being an alternative to cancer care so that's the first piece that uh, when we we're, were trying to work in and we spent a lot of time in collaboration with clinicians around how do we find the the right place to position the benefit because the benefit as you rightly say it, it's an important part of of the of the treatment of momentarium during the cancer journey, not after you've gone through your cancer journey and be like, okay, listen, there's nothing that you can get anymore. Now go be palliated, and it has always been conversed that way. So if you look at the at, at current literature, um, uh, all around the world, palliative care is part and parcel of treatment during the cancer treatment. So it should be given to patients as part of their treatment and the piece that i love most about this conversation is that uh, if you really think about it it's really to support patients through during their journey at at whatever aspect of their journey You may find that, um, one patient will require more intense, for instance, hospice type care. And that's usually where we saw palliative care playing, playing a role. And, you know, more, there's still that thinking in, in society that when you're being palliated, it's because you ought, the the choice is either being at hospice or going to die at home. It's, it's not about, it's not even about being, you know, a dignified death. It's really about making sure that patients throughout their journey get the right amount of support, the right amount of care, for either symptoms, for the symptoms of their cancer, symptoms of their chemotherapy or radiotherapy, and they are supported right through. So the intensity, depending on your stage, and I think that's, 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 that's how I understood your question. Depending on your stage, you might need more intensity of the, of the palliative care. So a person who's probably got advanced cancer, Who's got, um, um, you know, who's very limited in terms of functional capacity will need a lot more intense support, either through maybe, you know, they will have severe pain. So they might need a morph, a a morphine infusion and so on and so forth. They might have severe nausea and vomiting. So they might need support either through intravenous infusions and so on. So what we decided uh, at discovery is that we needed to design a benefit that understands these. Different patient needs, and say how do we best support our members? And of course, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that um, there, there, there's a vast amount of things that can be done, and we we we, we try our, we're trying our best. And I think the benefit to a very large extent tries to achieve this by saying, as patients. Need uh, in te- more intensity in terms of their palliative care. Not that they didn't need before. So we always offer it, even to, through the oncology journey, through the oncology benefit, to offer supportive care, antinausea medication, um, um, antidepressants, um, pain medication, um, and so on and so. There's lots of stuff that we offer, but as patient needs more and more intense. So then we said, as the journey proceeds, let's then carve a distinct benefit where patients then will require perhaps at home nursing if they so choose or they will require hospice care, um, um, or if they require more advanced therapies that uh, were not in our original benefit, uh, designed for the oncology benefit, and therefore we offer it separately. And it's also to enable the conversations between, you know, to allow for advanced healthcare planning, which in fact shouldn't start at the point where palliative care is being discussed. It should start even during. So we're trying to tweak these things as we learn more and more to offer advanced healthcare planning during the treatment, be it it's a year or two years before the palliative care uh, benefit is triggered, but the planning for what happens when you get there ought to have occurred, and that's what we're really trying to do. And I think we still have a long way away to really get that switch point and ensure that everything that we intend to d- to cover for is covered. But uh, I think our our collaboration with the palliative care specialists oncologists is really and and in fact actually patients we work together with uh, um activists uh, in the cancer space and survivors who also give us feedback we've spent time interviewing uh, uh survivors of cancer in our in, in, in our in our benefit of it to to ask them well how do they think we should do this and also make sure that it's supported by science in the evidence based component of it
1: It seems that the more advanced the cancer the more you want the right team around the patient
2: with the patient at the center. This has been raised by patients, you know, uh, before where there is a cancer diagnosis and who is supposed to be in my team of treating clinicians. So I've got uh, skin cancer. Do I go to an oncologist? Where do I go? So I think it's, it's important for patients. Ideally, specifically, if you've got advanced cancer, it becomes a team effort. Um, At early stage, you may find that, you know, the surgeon may be the only one involved, but ideally it should be a team. So I think for patients, once they've got the diagnosis, they need to really find out uh, who needs to be in that team because most of what is involved in cancer care is really a, a team approach. That involves an oncologist, a surgeon. I mean, there's other support, you know, uh, you know, stuff that needs to be there. In some instances, even genetic counseling is uh, required. In some instances, even uh, you know, supportive care. In the, in the sense of palliation, because there are doctors who have trained and specialized in some of that work. So it's important for patients to know that, you know, you, you, you may be taken care of by a team. It's just not one doctor looking after you uh, as such.
1: Dr. Nolutando, Dr. Sandile, thank you so much for your education and enlightenment. To listen to all the episodes in our 10 part oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts in our next episode we bring you a fascinating conversation centered around the theme of cancers that affect women with key insights from renowned specialist breast surgeon professor Carol Ben and gynecologist Dr. Trudy Smith all brought to you by discovery discovery
2: This is clefcentral.com.